0: Christmas Eve, 1945. Everything was merry and bright in the town of Fayetteville, West Virginia. Twinkling lights illuminated the town, families and children anticipating the coming days of cheerful Christmas get-togethers. But after a series of bizarre events, at 1 a.m. on Christmas Eve, the Sauter family were met with tragedy. Their home unexpectedly and mysteriously went up in flames. Some of the family escaped, but five of their children were never seen again. Officials ruled they must have perished in the fire, but others, including the Sauter family, believed that the fire was set deliberately and their five children were kidnapped that Christmas Eve. The circumstances leading up to the fire and what came afterwards have left the public questioning what really happened that night. It's one of the most puzzling Christmas time mysteries of all time. This is Avery After Dark and I'm your host, Avery Ross. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad you tuned in for today's episode. Many of you have requested this case and you know how I roll, you ask and I give it to you. When I first looked into the Sautter family case, I read a super brief summary of the story a few months back, wanted to see what the case was all about. And I initially wondered, where's the mystery here? It seemed pretty open and shut, a tragic fire, but this past week I decided to look into it a bit more and oh my goodness. Was I mistaken? This is anything but open and shut. This will be one of the most complex cases we cover on Avery After Dark. It is twist after twist. And be warned, this story is a never ending rabbit hole. And if you're new here, welcome. On Avery After Dark, I cover true crime, mysteries, supernatural, and everything in between. So if that's up your alley, you're in the right place. Now let's get right into it, shall we? Christmas Eve. December 24, 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sauter, along with their nine children, had spent the night at home as usual, looking forward to the days ahead. George Sodder had immigrated to the United States from Italy. Fayetteville had a large Italian community and George Sauter became very well known in town. He and his family lived in a two-story house, two miles north of town. The Sauters were regarded as one of the most respected families around per a local official. George was a businessman and had his own trucking company. He was also very vocal about his stances and wasn't afraid to share his opinions, specifically about his opposition to Mussolini, the Italian prime minister and dictator. And George's stances led to some heated arguments with members in the Italian community in Fayetteville. But all in all, they settled in well there. The Sodders and their kids lived a nice life. That was until that night. That evening, the family had been celebrating and spending time together. The Sauter's oldest daughter, Marion, worked at a store in downtown Fayetteville and surprised three of her younger sisters with new toys she had brought home as gifts. The three younger girls were so excited and asked their mom, Jenny, if they could stay up past their bedtimes and play. Jenny said yes and went up to bed, telling the girls not to stay up too late. The Sodder's son, Maurice, and his younger brother, Louis, put the cows in and fed the chickens that night before going up to bed as well. George Sodder and the two oldest boys, John and George, were already asleep upstairs. Having worked that day for their father, they were all quite tired. And eventually, everyone turned in for the night. At 12.30 a.m., Jenny was lying in bed and heard the telephone ring. So she got up and went to answer it, noticing that all the lights were still on downstairs and the curtains weren't drawn as they normally would be. Usually the Sauter children would attend to these things when they stayed up later than their parents. Jenny looked over and saw that Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch. She walked over, answered the phone, and on the other end of the line was a woman whose voice she didn't recognize, asking for someone she didn't know. In the background of the call, Jenny heard glasses clinking and laughter. She told the woman that she had the wrong number. The woman then let out a very strange laugh. (laughs) So Jenny hangs up the phone, turns off the lights, and goes back to bed. Then at 1 a.m., just 30 minutes later, Jenny was again awakened to the sound of a noise on the roof above her, a loud bang, and then a rolling noise, as if someone had dropped or thrown something. She sat up, waited, but didn't hear anything else, so she went back to sleep. 30 minutes later, Ginny woke up again and smelled smoke as it poured into her room. To her shock, their house was on fire. Ginny frantically woke George up. They saw the room that George used as an office was on fire. George, Ginny, and four of their children were able to escape. The children that got out of the burning house were two-year-old Sylvia, 17-year-old Marion, 23-year-old John, and 16-year-old George Jr. But that left five children missing still in the house. The ones still inside were 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, nine-year-old Louis, eight-year-old Jenny, and five-year-old Betty. The five of them shared two bedrooms between them, and both of these bedrooms were upstairs. As they were running out, the family screamed for the children upstairs, but heard no response from any of them. It was silent up there. George then decided to run back into the home to try to save them, but he found that the staircase leading upstairs was on fire. So George runs to grab his ladder that he always kept in a certain spot outside the house, but he gets there to find that it isn't in its usual spot, and it wasn't anywhere nearby either. He thought quickly, George had two trucks he used for work that were parked out in front of the house. He thought he could maybe use them to climb on top and get into the children's bedrooms. So he ran over, jumped in, but strangely found that neither of the trucks would start, even though they had been working perfectly just the previous day. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. So that was another dead end. With no way to save them, the Sodders were forced to stand there and watch their house burn down collapsing over the next 45 minutes, believing the five children were inside. Now here's where things get even more insane. As George is frantically running around, trying to find a way to save his children. In the meantime, Marianne quickly ran over to a neighbor's house to get help. She got there and they called the fire department, but the operator didn't respond. Then another neighbor called for help and the operator didn't answer them either. The same neighbor jumped in his car and drove into town. The department was only 2.5 miles away from the Sodder house. This neighbor found the fire chief, a man named F.J. Morris, in person, and told him that the Sodder family house was on fire. They needed help urgently. But shockingly, the fire department didn't get to the Sodder house until 8 a.m., seven hours after the fire started. They said this was because of low manpower due to the war, And the fire chief Morris said their response was also slow because he didn't know how to drive the fire truck. So he had to wait until someone who knew how to drive it was available. When they finally did get there, the house was nothing but ash. Officials searched for any remains in what was left of the Sodders' home, but nothing was found. And the children were presumed dead. In the following week, the coroner's office issued death certificates for the five children. The fire chief, F.J. Morris, stated that the fire was so hot that any remains would be completely cremated. But this isn't entirely true. Also strange, appliances were found in the ash, still recognizable, along with fragments from the tin roof. So not everything was destroyed. There was also a report that officials did find bone fragments in the fire, but chose not to tell the family. Officials ruled the cause of the fire was bad wiring. That, along with the fire department showing up seven hours late, it was a disaster. Beneath the ash from the fire, the only thing that remained of the house was the basement. And in the following days, George couldn't bear the sight and covered up the basement with dirt to create a memorial for his children. So, a horrible fire, a tragic loss. Was that it? Not at all. In the weeks following, George and Jenny began to really question the fire. They had a strange feeling. They didn't believe that their children were dead, but rather had been kidnapped. And the fire was set as a diversion. One thing that stuck out to George was a fire chief blaming this on faulty wiring. George couldn't believe it because he had just had the wiring checked by the power company just a few months prior that fall. This electrician deemed that the wiring of the home was in safe working order. And glaringly, George noted that the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages, when the power should have been out if it was faulty wiring. It's officially that time of year to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make the gift-giving season stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, the in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. One of my favorite items from Uncommon Goods is their stay cool adjustable laptop desk. I work so much on my computer and I use it every day. It's so well-made and super unique. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now, before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the United States. They have the most meaningful, out of the ordinary gifts anywhere. They really have it all, from art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar. Uncommon Goods has something for everyone, not the same lackluster gifts you can find just anywhere. They also have uncommon experiences, and these are more than just virtual classes. They're unexpected opportunities to have fun and connect in new ways. From cooking and mixology classes to romantic map making and so much more, and with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back one dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than two and a half million dollars to date. To get fifteen percent off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com/Avery. That's uncommongoods.com/Avery for fifteen percent off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at lifeLock.com/slash-aware. Terms apply. An even stranger. Remember that ladder that was supposed to be leaning up against the house? It was later found in an embankment, 75 feet away from the house. How it got there is a mystery. George also felt that his trucks not starting that night was incredibly suspicious. As I mentioned before, they had been running perfectly just hours before. And when George hears about Ginny's account of what happened the hour before the fire, he became incredibly concerned. She tells him about the strange phone call, the lights being on the hour before the fire started, and most importantly, the strange sounds on the roof, like someone had dropped something, and it rolled, only 30 minutes before the fire erupted. In the following months, when the Soder family was walking around the ash, they stumbled upon a strange object on the ground. George believed this is what Jenny heard drop and roll on the roof before the fire, and he believed it was a napalm pineapple bomb. All of these really strange and suspicious circumstances were starting to add up, and it didn't take long for theories to begin popping up about this fire, not being so accidental. Conversations about George, his stances on Mussolini, enemies he could have possibly made because of these stances were discussed. And it should be said, George himself was a bit of a mystery. In his years in the United States, he never revealed why he left Italy. He always kept that very private. But some believed it was because he got involved in some shady business in Italy. But either way, many people wondered, was revenge, retaliation, the motive to kidnap George's children that night? So, you ready? Let's discuss some of the strange and downright bizarre occurrences that took place before the fire that led the family and many others to believe this was no accident. Firstly, we have to talk about the life insurance salesman. That fall, just a couple months before the fire, a life insurance salesman paid a visit to the Solder family. During this meeting, George did not grant him a sale and said that when he denied him business, this life insurance salesman became enraged, screaming at George and said, quote, "'Your house is going up in smoke "'and your children are going to be destroyed. "'You're gonna be paid for the dirty remarks "'you've been making about Mussolini,' end quote." Also, in the days leading up to the fire, two of the Sodders' children mentioned seeing a man outside watching their house, specifically watching the children come home from school along the highway. The children didn't recognize this man and found it strange she appeared to be watching the family in the days before the fire. The Sodders also consulted with the crematorium and asked them, could there should there have been bone fragments found in the ash. And they found that although the fire chief said there would be no bones, a crematorium employee said, no, they should have found remains. Going on to say that bones are left behind even after burning at 200 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. And the solder house was only ablaze for 45 minutes. One pathologist even said that a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons. So scientifically, this wasn't adding up. Another strange tip came from a driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville the night of the fire. He said he saw people throwing balls of fire at the Sodder house. But hands down, one of the most chilling aspects of this case are the reported sightings of the Sodder children after the fire one occurring the night of December 24th while the fire was still occurring. One woman who was watching the fire from the road claimed she looked up and saw the soldered children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. 50 miles west of Fayetteville, another woman who operated a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston told police that she saw the solder children the morning after the fire, saying she served them breakfast. Also noting there was a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot. Another tip. At a hotel in Charleston, another woman named Ida Crutchfield said she saw the solder children a week after the fire. She told investigators she didn't remember the exact date, but said the children had come in around midnight with two men and two women all whom appeared to be of Italian extraction. She said when she tried to speak with the children, one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner. He then turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. She said immediately the whole party stopped talking to her. She said they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators today say they don't consider her story credible as she had only seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. And As time went on, the Sodders became only more convinced that their house was deliberately set on fire that night. But where were the children? A few years after the fire, George saw a photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City in a newspaper. And one of the children in the photo, to him, looked exactly like his missing daughter Betty. Sadly, George drove all the way to New York to find this young girl, He was even able to track down her parents. He reached out to them repeatedly, telling them about the fire, but the girl's parents declined to speak with him. So he left New York, never knowing. In 1947, with no help from local officials, George and Jenny tried to get the FBI on the case. And amazingly enough, the FBI agreed. But in a bizarre turn of events, both the Fayetteville police and fire department turned down the FBI's offer to help. Now, why would they do that? George and Jenny then enlisted the help of a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. So C.C. jumps on the case and begins asking some questions, starting at the top. And he finds out that one of the members on the coroner's jury, who ruled the Solder House fire was an accident, was that same life insurance salesman that had a run-in with George just a few months before the fire. The same man who told George that his house would go up in flames and his children would be destroyed. Hmm. What a coincidence. And also, talk about a conflict of interest. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. When CeCe spoke to people in town, he talked with the minister and heard that the fire chief, F.J. Morris had been telling people that he had found a heart in the ashes of the Sodder home, that he had hidden it in a box and buried it near the Sodder house. Cece then asked the fire chief about this and somehow persuaded him to take him to the buried box and show him. And once it was dug up, Cece found that this heart wasn't a heart at all, but rather beef liver. The chief said he only did this to help give the Sodder family closure. What is wrong with people in this town? I'm blown away and not in a good way. In August, 1949, the Sodders hired a pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. He went on to excavate the dirt from the remains of the Sodder house, and he found bone fragments. These fragments were sent to the Smithsonian, but after testing, they found these bones did not belong to any of the Sodder children, rather an older teenager. And they theorized that these bones originated from the dirt used to fill the basement, not from the house itself. These bones were sent back to George Sauter, but their whereabouts to this day remain a mystery. No one knows who these bones belong to, but this was yet another dead end. This case had become so well known, the governor called a hearing at the Capitol and he officially declared the case closed, going so far as to tell George and Jenny that their search was hopeless. In turn, the FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, so the Sauters were hopeful their assistance would lead to answers. But the FBI dropped the case after two years following, quote, fruitless leads, end quote. With no help from local authorities, it seemed that everyone was giving up on this case, but not George and Jenny. They did not stop. They never gave up hope. George, Jenny, and the surviving children passed out flyers about the case, photos of the missing children, offering a $5,000 reward, then doubling it for any information on the case. They also put up a huge billboard in town along Route 16. The billboard read, On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children ages 5-14 through were kidnapped, The officials blamed effective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. No bones were found in the residue. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? And this billboard, which accused officials of being in on it, remained up for 40 years and kept the story alive. In town, people theorized that the mafia was involved in the fire, and the solder children were now in Italy, and the tips kept coming. The solders received a letter from a woman in St. Louis, Missouri, which said that their eldest missing daughter, Martha, was in a convent somewhere in St. Louis. George would always follow up on these leads himself, traveling to areas where the tips had come from. But this was another dead end. Another strange tip came from someone in Florida that claimed that the children were living with Jenny's distant relative there. In 1967, George traveled to Texas, specifically the Houston area, to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the Sodders saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She said she believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. But when George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, got to Houston, they were unable to speak with her. Like so many of these tips, once George got there and began looking into it, possible information about his missing children, I'm sure every time getting his hopes up, these people who reached out with tips would suddenly clam up and shut him out. This happened time and time again, which just had to be so devastating for him but he never gave up. In 1968, 23 years after the fire, Jenny Sauter received a letter. They believed this to be the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. The letter was addressed to her, not the family. And in the letter, there was a photograph of a man in his mid twenties. This man looked very familiar to the family and they believed it could be their son, Lewis, who was nine years old when he vanished. This man had the same dark brown eyes curly dark hair, same nose, and same eyebrows. And on the back of the note, there was a handwritten letter that read, Lewis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, lil boys, A90132, or 35. In an interview, Sylvia Sodder reportedly said that Lewis gave his brother Maurice the nickname Frankie, and the Sodders believed that this was his way of letting his family know that he was still alive. They feared that if the kids were still out there, that maybe they were scared or threatened to not directly reach out to the family. Unfortunately, this letter had no return address though and was postmarked somewhere in Central City, Kentucky. But the family really felt like this could be Lewis. This was a very strong lead. So they hired another private investigator to look into where this letter came from in Kentucky and try and locate this young man. They had a state, they had a city and they had a photo and they were gonna run with it. So a PI the family hired began work on the job, but in the midst, he disappeared. He was never seen or heard from again. It really does feel like anytime the family was actually getting anywhere with this case, there was some mysterious interference. I mean, for a PI to go missing? What? And George Sauter passed away the next year in 1969 at 74 years of age. Jenny, for the rest of her life, wore black and mourning and tended to the garden at the site of their former house. Jenny passed away 20 years later in 1989. And after that, the family finally took down that weathered billboard. Sylvia Sodder was the last known remaining Sodder child. Just like her parents, she believed that her siblings did not die in the fire that night. She passed away in 2021. Sylvia's daughter, a woman named Jenny Henthorne, has told the media that My mom promised my grandmother that she would never let the story die. That's what my brother and I are doing now. This case is sad for so many different reasons. George and Jenny dedicated the rest of their lives to finding their children. They never gave up. George tracking down every single tip he ever received. That's love. It's so sad and frustrating that the Sauter family was given no help by local authorities. Not only did they not help them the night of the fire, showing up seven hours late, they had to live the rest of their lives not knowing what happened to their five children, if they were still out there somewhere. But I have to know, what are your thoughts on this case? Let me know in the comments. I always love hearing your take on these cases. As always, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Subscribe to this channel, leave a like, and if you enjoy this podcast, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Next episode, I have so much more mystery coming your way. Until then, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.